0: Here's a question. What's spreading across the globe? Is passing unwittingly from person to person? Is potentially deadly, yet it can be stopped if everyone takes steps to prevent its spread? The answer misinformation.
1: I've started to see the spread of misinformation as a global health crisis. It is an infection at the very heart of our democracies.
0: Welcome to World Versus Virus, a podcast from the World Economic Forum that tries to make sense of the coronavirus pandemic. This week, fake news. We look at how misinformation has gone viral in the age of coronavirus and hear from the most senior communicator at the United Nations who wants you to be an ambassador
2: for the truth. So far we've recruited 110,000 information volunteers kind of digital first responders.
0: And we hear from this entrepreneur who's worked at places including Twitter about a new startup which aims to equip those of us who consume the media, which is everybody, to navigate the Wild West of information.
1: If people cannot trust information about the critical challenges in our world today, whether it's coronavirus or climate change, then we cannot make recent decisions as a democracy.
0: Subscribe to World vs. Virus on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts and please take a moment to like, rate and review us. I'm Robin Pomeroy, digital editor at the World Economic Forum.
2: We're seriously in an information environment that is polluted and we need to clean up the pollution.
0: And with a look at fake news in the time of coronavirus, this is World vs. Virus. Have you heard about the miracle cure for COVID-19 that the mainstream media don't want you to know about? Or maybe that the pandemic is in fact a plandemic, deliberately created to make someone a fortune or to subjugate the masses? Then you've come up against the virus of misinformation that has spread around the world just like the coronavirus itself. In a world where social media is increasingly where most of us get so much of our information, and a world where we value freedom of speech as a cornerstone of democracy, what can we do to combat dangerous misinformation. We'll be hearing from journalist and entrepreneur Mark Little with his ideas on how we might do that. But first, I spoke to Melissa Fleming, who leads global communications at the United Nations, and he's working to get us to share real science-based facts about the pandemic.
2: When COVID-19, when the crisis emerged, it was clear from the outset this was not just a public health emergency but it was a communications crisis as well. Actually, WHO put out the term right at the start, infodemic. So what we were facing was um, a huge, huge, huge hunger from the general public for information, Um, but uh, a, a kind of mixture which is toxic of good information and bad information. Um, and that's what's called an infodemic. And that means for the public, if you look at the consumer, that you know they're you know, hungry for information, searching online, mix that with the social media age and a global pandemic, and what you end up with is information chaos. Um, people not na- being able to navigate to the good, solid public health advice um, and often being led astray by the purveyors of misinformation who can often, you know, uh, uh, pretend they're they're um, speaking in in facts when actually they're circulating fiction, harmful fiction.
0: So information chaos. But is that really harmful?
2: Well, confusion creates harm because there is a tendency for people just uh, to either shut off or when they feel confused to search for answers that will kind of assuage their fears or give them explanations. And the the problem is when you're dealing with science, science evolves. Um, A a novel coronavirus, you know, from the beginning, there, there was, it's novel, so little was known. And so the scientists, the public health experts weren't able to say definitively this is how it spreads. Um, this is where, uh, you know, how it originated. This is, um, this is what will happen to you if you get sick from it. And this is how to protect yourself. So there were, you know, th- these kind of guidelines were given, but they were very often revised as the knowledge um, changed. And this created a sense of confusion by people. And then so when, when you had the alternative, which was a piece of misinformation that was saying, This is all a conspiracy or this is a hoax or actually there's this miracle cure that you can take Um, that kind of you know spoke to people's emotions and fears and led them sometimes down to uh, on paths that were either to deny that this was happening so not to take the public health precautions you know, or, you know, even to endanger others by, you know, going out with not wearing a mask um, and circulating the virus as as we see um, in so many parts of the world.
0: So tell us something about the work you're doing to combat the infodemic.
2: Yeah. So we, you know, very, when we recognized that this was a, a global communications emergency, we actually partnered with, with um, a communications mobilization company called Purpose and we created uh, a, a new uh, campaign called Verified. And verified is um, to elevate the kind of the science-based information in formats that are optimized for social sharing, uh, for sharing on social media that doesn't, you know, kind of end up as the PDF at where on page 125, you might find the information you're searching for, but it is front and center in your social media feed. So it can commute, it can compete with the misinformation, slick misinformation content. That's one thing it did. The other, um, we really studied behavioral science um, in the social media age and concluded you know, with, with the experts that we consulted that, there is something that individuals can do um, to stop the spread of misinformation, or at least to slow it. I mean, it's not all up to the individuals, but it can help. And that is really um, to just become your own investigator, to be uh, you know, hesitant. So we, we're trying to create this new social norm called pause, take care before you share. So that in the back of your mind, when you're on Twitter, when you're on Facebook, when you're looking at YouTube... You take that pause and you say, hmm, this information is causing my heart to kind of palpitate. <laughs> Maybe it's too good to be true. Maybe I need to go and check the source, the date. Is that photo really real? So we're equipping people through this new social norm with a bit of information skepticism. Um, so part of this uh, verified uh, and pause campaign uh, entails also recruiting people around the world. And so far, we've recruited 110,000 information volunteers. And we equip these information volunteers uh, with the kind of knowledge about how misinformation spreads and uh, ask them to serve as kind of digital first responders um, in those spaces where misinformation travels, and that is in groups, uh, peer to peer. Um, and also to share our our good information. So this is the initiative and we're going to keep it going because misinformation continues to surge. It's all about you know this very human kind of instinct to react to content that that is either frightening or appealing or exciting and 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 wanting to share it some sometimes even without, totally believing it, but just to see if you can get validation from your group somewhere else. We see that across all ages, um, unfortunately. And so we're also really calling for much more um, media literacy in, I, I think it should start, you know, in schools at young ages that, that kids really understand, you know, what they're being confronted with online and that not all of it uh, is, is true and some of it can be dangerous.
0: Now let's take an example. I'm on social media. I've seen something exciting or interesting or provocative and I've shared it. Now I've not checked whether it's true or not. And in fact, I'm not saying it's true. I've just shared it. I've just added to the debate. And in fact, we've seen certain politicians and political leaders do that, giving them kind of a plausible deniability, saying, hey, I just put that out there. I just put that conspiracy theory out there for discussion. What do you think about that attitude?
2: Well, that's no defense. Um, I think we all understand, and especially in a pandemic and a, the global crisis that we're facing right now, that um, we need leadership. We need leaders who are, who believe in science and who perpetuate information that is based on science. And anything else is, you know, could endanger the public. People people look up to leaders, and many people believe what they spread. And um, they have a responsibility to speak um, uh, to speak truth and to guide the public, um, you know, into responsibility. So we've seen, you know, where there's been a combination of strong leadership in the pandemic combined with, um, you know, with kind of responsible um, media coverage that the pandemic has had less of a chance to circulate. Um, you know, where the leadership has been, you know, spreading, you know, false false, and fake science and uh, been confusing to the public, um, we've seen misinformation proliferate and the virus has been much, much worse.
0: And I suppose an opposite attitude to someone who's just sharing everything is someone who doesn't believe anything anymore. All politicians are liars, all scientists are out for themselves a complete cynicism and disbelief in any information and that in some ways is just as dangerous isn't it
2: yeah that's why i mean we think that we're we, we're seriously in an information environment that is polluted and we need to clean up the pollution um, we the public needs sources of information that they can trust and they need public figures that who they can trust and you know, one of the things that we're trying to do is also to kind of uh, popularize scientists. Uh, that's one of the initiatives of the UN. Um, it's called Team Halo, where we're giving scientists around the world who are in in the labs, um, you know, kind of quietly developing a COVID-19 vaccine. We're giving that we've trained them on TikTok and, and given them the title of um, guide. And they're actually, you know, bringing the public into their labs and, and just talking and answering questions and you know about kind of humanizing the process of reaching a vaccine, in in an attempt to kind of distill the, the the fears and the the kind of mystery and the darkness and the misinformation surrounding that process. So you know the same with you know leading public health figures. There are polls that suggest that um, that people do have faith in in scientists and doctors much more than their political leaders, but there are scientists and doctors who are have gone out and um publicly been involved in when you we think of the the film plandemic that went absolutely viral um this was at at the center was a discredited virologist um who um you know put on a lab coat and people kind of believed her without checking her discredited credentials um, so yes, it is really important that we rebuild and uh, the trust in science, scientists, um, and the public uh, figures who are guiding our societies.
0: And another example of a doctor causing misinformation would be the one at the heart of the anti-vax movement who claimed falsely that vaccines were causing autism in children. Now this is something likely to be amplified as we look to vaccinate potentially billions of people against COVID-19. So is that a battle that you anticipate?
2: Well, that battle has already begun. Um, as soon as the good news about the vaccines and the success of the vaccine trials were you know, headline news, we saw a huge spike in misinformation about the vaccine. Um, I mean, we'd already heard the crazy um, conspiracies that were already brewing um, about you know Bill Gates installing chips in, in <laughs> into people so he could control the world and and uh, you know that this this the, it, it it was already part of the conspiracy theories that were going around and now we've heard even you know new ones have have sprung up around the the new COVID nineteen vaccine that it would change your DNA all kinds of you know crazy things however you were rightly um, indicated that it is really important to understand what people fear. And you cannot commute, communicate persuasively about an injection that is going to be put into your arm and your f- children's arms and your parents' arms if you don't understand what people are afraid of. And, you know, I think over to- over the years um, we you know, doctors and health officials were able to convince most parents to give their children vaccines um, because they could show the success. They could show the process, years of safety checks. Um, what we what's happening here is is a vaccine in record time, record time, um, not because safety steps were were skipped, but that people believe that they're worried about that. Um, so we need to communicate to them that. Um, it's, it's been a race in order to save, um, to save the world and no safety steps have been skipped um, and that this is really the only way we're going to overcome this crisis. We at the UN have developed um, a vaccine confidence initiative. Um, we're working with WHO and Gavi and UNICEF. And um, we've developed a, uh, a practitioner's guide um, for communicators on how best to speak. To publicly and to people who are vaccine hesitant, so as really to, you know, speak, you know, to address their fears, not dismiss them, um, and, and to be able to communicate in a persuasive way. Uh, you know, WHO, one of their top scientists, has said we are at the base of, it's like we're at the base camp of Mount Everest in terms of vaccine development Um, And as we all know, when you reach the base camp of Mount Everest, there are many steep steps to go before you can reach the summit. And one of those steps is going to be to make sure that we have enough people who are willing to take this vaccine um, in order to reach herd immunity. And so this is we're taking extremely seriously.
0: So what role do you see in all of this combating misinformation? What role for the social media companies?
2: Well, absolutely. Uh, the social media platforms—you uh, know, this is where the this is where uh, the misinformation is traveling wildly, um, and uh, you know, they're aware. We and we meet with them regularly. Um, they have made some significant uh, policy changes. Um, they have been, you know, pointing people to the direction of good content to to WHO content, um, to UN content, uh, to CDC content, when they, and, you know, are in that space of, of kind of searching. Um, and they are trying to suppress um, misinformation in various ways. Um, some of it is flagging. Um, some of it is, you know, putting it way down in their algorithms. Um, some of it is even banning uh, certain groups. But still, uh, we're seeing a huge prevalence, uh, despite these measures, of, of misinformation um, traveling on social media channels. So, we do think that this is—they um, had there. There's much more that they're going to need to, to do um, to really spot it in real time and to suppress it. Um, you know, whether it is—I mean, right now, Facebook, for example, has banned ads um, that. Are placed by anti vax groups and that contain anti vax content. However, if somebody, you know, or what they call organic content that has an anti vaccine message is permitted. So, you know, they're very, we know that uh, purveyors of of misinformation are very clever uh, about how to use the algorithms and get around certain rules. And we see that, um, you know, very often when a when a video that is really dangerous is taken down, it's just kind of reformatted with new keywords and and put back up. So it's a it's a real battle. And um, and yes, much more needs to be done.
0: So if listeners want to know more about your campaigns and how they can get involved, there's the hashtag pledge to pause. Um, Where else can they go?
2: Absolutely. Pledge to Pause is is the, the kind of social behavior campaign. Um, and uh, you could also uh, check out shareverified.com and sign up to become a uh, UN information volunteer. You'll get a daily email from us, uh, which will you know give you kind of insights into the misinformation space, but also uh, a daily... Um, piece of content that you might want to share or just consume or engage in and it helps us a lot um, if you sign up so that would be great and and thanks very much in advance
0: melissa fleming head of global communications at the united nations the link she mentioned there as com, if you fancy yourself as a self-styled un ambassador for truth you're listening to World vs. Virus. We'll be right back after this.
2: The World Economic Forum has a special podcast where the world's top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. This week, we talked to AARP's Chief Public
0: Policy Officer, Deb Whitman, about a special training for frontline staff at banks and credit unions
2: that's tackling the multi-billion dollar problem of financial exploitation, one that devastates senior savings and feelings of self-worth. When people are exploited, their health suffers. Their personal view of themselves suffer it can lead to consequences all the way up to death.
0: That training
2: doesn't just protect nest eggs, it has helped build empathy, key to tackling this massive problem.
0: I think sometimes a single story can be heard by one person and be impactful, but getting that story into the hands of 14,000 people that we just did in the last
1: nine months showed me how we can scale empathy.
2: I'm your host, Linda Lucina. Get all that and more on this week's Meet the Leader, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your favorite podcast.
0: Welcome back to World vs. Virus, where we're looking at the global infodemic, the virus of misinformation now if human ingenuity is smart enough to create social media networks that allow billions of people to communicate effortlessly is there a way that that same ingenuity can be harnessed to combat dangerous misinformation my colleague alex court spoke to this man who thinks there is?
1: Yeah, so my name is Mark Little. Uh, I've been a journalist for about 30 years, but over the past decade, I have been uh, involved in two successive startups that are focusing on the quality of information in society. I was the founder of Storyful, which was the first social media news agency, kind of the first fact-checking organization out there. And uh, now I am the CEO and co-founder along with my colleague, Onya Kerr of Kinzen. And we're trying to develop artificial intelligence that can help scale the expertise of human editors.
0: Can you lay out the scale of the misinformation situation that we're experiencing at the moment?
1: I've started to see very much the spread of misinformation as a global health crisis, because only when we think about misinformation in the same way we think about the spread of the coronavirus in a similar way, that misinformation is that serious a threat to our society. If people cannot trust information about the critical challenges in our world today whether it's coronavirus or climate change then we cannot make recent decisions as a democracy. So it is an infection at the very heart of our democracies and I think if we start to see it that way we'll understand that our objective should not be to return to some form of state censorship of these platforms but it should be about how to decentralize power to the active citizen to protect themselves against this virus and also protect their friends, their families, their communities by not spreading it. So I think the focus in whatever great reset is happening, it's not a great return to state power, regulation, censorship. It's a realization that the biggest problems of our generation right now at this moment in history are to decentralize power to active citizens to protect themselves against what is a virus of misinformation. And that means a lot more attention to how we as individuals can process the difference between what is false, what is motivated by deception, and what is true and important to us. Misinformation now is happening within our friends and families. So we have to find strategies to first of all recognize it. And secondly, as active citizens, just like we wear masks to protect others, we need to be the good citizen, the active vector fighting back in our daily lives. And we've got to design ways in which we give a really media literacy to these people who at the moment have no idea how this tsunami of information that comes at them every day is filtered or recommended and we've got to make that much more transparent we need to give ordinary citizens the power of critical thinking to take you know a little bit more deliberative pause when they feel emotional about a piece of information to have a little bit more friction in their user experience of information to make them think i worked for twitter so i must Uh, you know, declare that conflict of interest. But I was very impressed by Twitter's experiments in creating friction, where putting labels or some limits on retweets, when they saw a piece of information that was clearly misinformation, and creating that deliberative pause for the ordinary person to maybe think for a moment, I think is a super exciting development, because it maintains freedom of speech, but it also limits the reach uh, by the actions of empowered citizens. That for me is the heart of what I would love to see the platforms doing in the years to come in trying to make their platforms, I suppose, really go back to the early days because I believe in social media as a democratic force, making people, allowing people to speak their truth to the world, but it's been hijacked by anti-democratic forces. And I hope technology platforms realize uh, that they need radical change to get back to the original roots and democratic promise of these platforms they created.
0: How do you see a better collaboration then between the technology platforms on one side and regulators and governments on the other side?
1: There is no easier solution. The business model of the platforms, unfortunately, encourages the spread of this kind of outrageous information. But that has to change, or else there will be regulation. And I don't think any platform, and I don't think any human rights activist or freedom of speech advocate wants that either. So I would think the first step here is governments empowering a civil society group, probably transnational, international, to do a root audit, root and branch of the way that information is distributed on all the different platforms. And in some ways it's almost like the platforms having to sign up to a program where they are certified. Um, We would not allow innovation, inventions that are so critical to the health of our democracy be so opaque and secretive. It's just crazy in the modern age that these organizations should have the power over our societies without the kind of oversight that I think is absolutely needed. I think legislation should follow. It should not be the first step. I would hate to see freedom of speech throttled in the name of stopping misinformation.
0: Clearly AI has a big role to play given the quantity of information that's out there that has to be moderated. But when humans create the AI systems, they bring their own biases with them. So how do you stop AI systems from amplifying existing human bias?
1: There is no algorithm that's going to solve this problem, certainly not on its own. Secondly, if there was, I don't think that's a good thing either. Even if it was really effective, we wouldn't want that because of those very reasons. Is that At the moment, these algorithms are being built without any real oversight. So the training data that's going in is essentially biased. Um, and, and that essentially has not been, uh, there's no proper oversight for that, that uh, data. The second thing is that a lot of people in Silicon Valley have a bias toward engineering solutions, technical solutions. And so we have seen that a lot of the platforms have been using human fact checkers as just another way of training algorithms that will eventually make the fact checkers obsolescent. That's absolutely the wrong approach. There has to be editors at every stage of the process. The training data has to be created by highly skilled editors, I would argue, with the kind of sensibility of the old journalist sub-editor mentality. So that training data goes into the machine model. It starts to come back with results. There has to be another editorial intervention there. The machine learning model allows us to sort of close down and find the needle in the haystack. But we'll also identify a lot of what we call false positives. So pull a lot of hay out with with the needle. So there has to be a human being at the end of the process, overseeing the results and making sure that there's an accuracy there. So if the editor is not at the beginning, middle and end of this process of designing and building algorithms, then this is, A, it won't work. It won't detect what we need to detect. And secondly, I don't think that's a situation we want anyway, because that's when we start to sort of miss out the biases that will go into these systems. So I think what we should be developing is a consortium approach in the part of the platforms. They need to give researchers way more data uh, and way more transparency about how these recommendation systems are built. They need to involve, I think, all the platforms in a common approach to come together to start agreeing some protocols by which they're training their own systems. No one platform can solve this on their own. They need to come together and if they won't do it voluntarily, they need to be brought together. And then I think we just need civil society to start taking the skills of journalism and editorial skills and research skills and bringing them into the design of these algorithms. So I think technology companies have to use the artificial intelligence they currently use, their algorithms, to not recommend content based on emotion, but start detecting these patterns that signify like the dog whistles that tell you something is not right and make that very transparent. The technology companies should not be censors, Now we're not talking about suppressing freedom of speech. We're removing the, the sort of the power of reach, the recommendation engines that are too often getting behind these campaigns of disinformation.
0: Mark Little, CEO of Kinzen, K-I-N-Z-E-N, was talking to Alex Court. If you'd like to comment on anything you've heard in this episode, why not join the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook? That's where we discuss not just our own podcasts, but all of the best ones on all subjects, wherever we can find them. Just search on Facebook for the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Talking of podcasts, have you tried this one?
1: So we are losing crop diversity every day uh, at a a pretty alarming rate.
0: One in five plants is threatened with extinction, and that that applies to all plants. This week on House on Fire, why would a scientist want to risk their life for a seed? We'll discuss what habitat destruction and climate change mean for the diversity of our crops and for us.
1: The diversity in our crops is basically the the building blocks of agriculture. If these diseases spread into these areas of high banana production, then they could wipe out a whole industry. There's a lot of livelihoods that depend on. That. that is scary.
0: And we'll meet the innovators trying to save our planet's genetic
1: diversity before it's too late. The Svalbard Global Seed Vault, this, um, this facility above the Arctic Circle in the far, far north of Norway, it's, it's a place like no other. Through
2: the use of autonomous robots, submarines, drones, aerial drones, terrestrial rovers, we're capturing elements of biodiversity that have DNA.
1: We're in the process of writing the Amazon Book of Life.
0: That's House on Fire from the World Economic Forum. My thanks to our guests this week, Melissa Fleming from the United Nations and Mark Little from Kinsan. Please subscribe to Well vs Virus wherever you get your podcasts and take a moment to like, rate and review us. You can find all the back catalogue of all our podcasts at wef.ch slash podcasts and get our coverage of COVID-19 and many other big issues at weform.org and across social media, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, TikTok and Twitter using the handle at WEF. Thanks very much to Gareth Nolan and to Alex Court for help making this week's podcast. Thanks to you for listening. But for now, from me, Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum, Goodbye.